Giles Files, and my name is Nancy Giles. Hi, how are you? Hi. <laughs> good, good to be here. To yes. See you both. Do you hear how giddy and excited Nancy and I are? All right, let me explain. Whenever you hear the words New Jersey, the automatic joke is, what exit, right? Okay, New Jersey has many jewels, though, starting with the brand new Barrymore Film Center in Fort Lee. And a funny thing happened on the way to their gala opening a few months back. So picture this, a packed stretch limo heading to a red carpet walk and some innocent conversation in the back seat. Nancy Wyatt is talking and I, Nancy Giles, am eavesdropping. And we're all there jumping in this long white stretch of limos. Sorry, more film center opening gala. Opening. And um, you and I started talking. We were talking yeah. about how we both got snookered into paying more money for a location shooting in New Jersey. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you remember yeah. that. And it was right. just a lovely conversation about filmmaking. And um, we were just chatting away. And I thought, oh, gee, Linda's nice. And then we got to the place and Nancy said to me, do you know who that is? It's Linda Yellen. Like, she's Linda like a big, she's big time. We got to talk to her. <laughs> and I said, oh, I just thought she was nice. But okay. Very kind. Very kind. We're kindred spirits. Yes. And there's absolutely. no. That's the voice of legendary filmmaker Linda Yellen, an award-winning director, writer, and producer of over 20 films, including the critically acclaimed 1993 film Chantilly Lace a tour de force story that she developed using non-scripted improvisations with her actors. We spoke with Linda a while back after her sequel to Chantilly Lace, Chantilly Bridge, had a run at the 2022 Toronto Film Festival. My friends, my family. It's been 25 years since they've all been together. It was my funeral. Why did she keep coffee in her bedroom? Don't, don't, don't. It's... Ashes. Oh. Her ashes. You have a conviction that at a certain age you should have it all together. But then you get older and you keep moving the goalpost. We were we were thrilled. We had uh, the, the movie was sold at uh, Toronto and, and we had four offers, mm -hmm. which was fabulous for uh, an intimate story with a bunch of older women. Mm. They include Joe Beth Williams, Talia Shire, Ali Sheedy, Helen Slater, uh, Jill Eikenberry, uh, Patricia Richardson. I just Lindsay wonderful Krause. Lindsay Krause. Thank you for helping me out. I could always get to six, but not seven. <laughs> and you know, and yeah. uh, and they, two newcomers. They have, mm -hmm. That's right. right. Well, one newcomer, right. uh, Najee Sky Adzmova, who very very interesting story. I also you know, particularly would love your take because I decided to um, write that character of a mixed race daughter from the point of view of a sort of liberal white woman of my age who doesn't know if she's being correct or not in her views, but, um, you know, but, but has a good heart. Growing up in a place where people don't look like you, it was pretty hard. isolating. This town is very, 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 very white. It's oh, very yeah. homogenous. Yeah. And people definitely growing up, and kids are mean, but people were very quick to make me feel like the other. When I was little, it was the, 
you know, oh, does the color rub off? Then it evolves to when you're an actual teenager and people saying really offensive things and, you know, nobody asking you to prom because they're a target if they're taking the only black girl in the class, you know, that kind oh, of thing. Oh, I never heard that. I'm glad to hear about this. We have such different experience of life. I mean, you know. Yeah, you have the privilege to not have to see this. Mm. I'm, I'm kind of thrilled, you'll see when you see it, the, the, the results because it's the most honest, you know? I think it's, that means that that person is not necessarily politically sophisticated like mm. some other people are, um, but, but with the best intentions. And, and it's interesting how this beautiful, brilliant young woman um, deals with that commentary and the repartee. Only instead of it being one woman in this case, there are six older women who, who voice their, their sometimes mm -hmm. not appropriate opinions. Oh, <laughs> that's that good. I like it. That's true. Yeah. Like the original movie, was, was this one, because I read the Chantilly Lace, there was kind of freedom with the dialogue and there was some improvisation and, and things like that that happened spontaneously. Did that happen well, with Chantilly Bridge? Yes. Well, we were all old hands, even though we hadn't seen each other in so many years. It was like we just fell right back into step of the, and like the old days. And I believe in it. I mean, unless you're doing Shakespeare where you want the words to be exactly precise, I believe that each actor brings more to it than I as a writer director can. And pretty soon they know that character better than me. Uh, you would know this, Nancy, as an actress. And so uh, their own inflections, their own thoughts, uh, sometimes they're such wonderful things that no person could write mm -hmm. such cleverness for all seven characters. So I welcome it. And you know, if it doesn't work out, it winds up on the editing room floor, which you know, Nancy. So <laughs> there you go. It's so nice to hear a writer giving actors that freedom because when I was on China Beach, we got a we got a memo at one point, season two, saying stick to the dialogue, like no more improv. <laughs> and we were like, ooh, okay. And it's but, I mean, I feel the same way as you. If it's Shakespeare or if it's uh, a novel, leave the novel alone. But if you're going to put it in the mouths of live people, let it live. Mm -hmm. Well put. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you come out of Second City. I, I got a chance to work uh, years ago with Jim Belushi, who started ah. there. Mm -hmm. And and then in a film I did with uh, Dennis Hopper, we, we had a lot of Second City people in it, too. So they, they're just natural for that kind of thing. And so I love it. Breaking news bulletin, folks. Breaking news bulletin. Due to an infestation of chipmunks, the Ojai Film Festival has been moved to the local high school. Do not go to the town lodge. You will be up to your ankles in feces. Now, I've been pretty lucky. I've been going, you know, in my life to the top 10% of film festivals, but there are so many of them. There are mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of them. And even in that kind of special group, there's a lot of silliness that goes on in the festival. So mm -hmm. that I tried to imagine what the worst film festival would be like. And that's <laughs> what we see in the movie and had the extraordinary experience then became very sad. It's Dennis Hopper's last film and he didn't know he was ill. And he became oh. ill uh, towards the end of our filming. You think the film is a bust and you think I'm yesterday's news. 
And meanwhile, back in Hollywood, careers are being made every minute, and you're stuck out here in Ojai. Well, I get it because I was you. The gopher for King Vidor. Is that King Vidor some period piece? Oh, you asshole. King Vidor was a great director in his prime. This was at the end of his career, one of his last movies, Solomon and Sheba, starring Tyrone Power. Ty is like having a dueling scene with George Sanders in the middle of shooting the picture. He keels over, he has a heart attack, and he dies. UA says we're canceling the picture. And Dennis Hopper looked so good. He didn't yeah, look sick at all. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. No. Yeah. Prostate cancer, guys. Oh, Get man. your tests. Yeah. So you're telling me this is your last movie and it's going to be a bomb? No, I'm telling you that the point of this is that you do everything you can in your power to protect the film. When you do a project, you have to passionately believe that it's going to be not only a good creative endeavor, but also a good investment for people mm. who get involved. And it was hard to take that position on a movie that had been, you know, sort of laying around for six years where the lead had, had already passed. You oh. know? So um, and, and it was a, it was, again, one of those terrible lessons in life because, you know, Dennis was so much larger than life and had. So many people who adored him and wanted to be just in his company and his camp. But those people, when it came to, you know, wanting to help get his last movie made, which he was very proud of, um, made uh, once he died, they, they sort of disappeared. Mm. So that was, uh, uh, you know, hmm. an interesting thing. But I'm glad that the core team of people who made the movie with me didn't disappear. Oh yeah, and, and they some of the people I've worked with over and over again, like yeah. Joe Beth Williams was in that movie, and Jacqueline Bissett, and 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 there's some wonderful people like uh, Chris Kattan and Hakeem mm -hmm. Kaba, who said we want to get this finished too. Yeah. We want this to yeah. come out. That's how that happened. Jacqueline Bissett's character looks like she had a lot of fun with that. I love the accent. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Yes, uh, the Italian accent. It's a. Uh, she um, uh, is a great comic and she doesn't often ah. get because of her great beauty and she doesn't get cast that way. But uh, uh, knowing her as a friend, uh, she, she really was fabulous. Too much cheese, too much meat, too much, oh, salty, salty, impossible. Oh my God, uh, all the sandwiches look good. Don't you have uh, anything healthy? Would you like a hamburger? Fruit, fruta. Something without sugar? No, ma'am, I'm sorry we don't. Scusi, I have to take this terrible food. I give in to America. I give in. So, Linda, how did you get started in the business? I was a, a stringer for the New York Times as a scholarship student at Barnard mm -hmm. in, in 1968. And uh, then the Columbia riots happened. And part of my uh, job was to go into the buildings um, and capture uh, what the students had to say mm -hmm. um, mm. and, I, and write it down and then bring it down. And, and I had to dress when you went into the buildings, you know, I had to wear a headband and, and uh, barefoot and, and, and bell bottoms. <laughs> and then I had to quickly go back and then, because it was very conservative those days, still the New York times and change into a little prissy dress and, 
little heels and bring my copy down. Oh, wow. And, um, I did this for a number of times. And then I realized that the only way to really capture it would be to see it on film. And I knew nothing about film, but I loved film. And uh, there were a couple of documentary filmmakers that I somehow cajoled to uh, shoot uh, different things that I would point to as a director. <laughs> That's still pointing. You know, yeah. years later. And, and that became my first feature film. And uh, now, was that uh, so come I out, understood. come out, Linda? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We were yep. wondering because in some of the biography information that's out there about you, they say your first film is Prospera, but then we found Come Out, Come Out, and it was even older than that. So that was your first well, feature. Well, actually, no. Prospera was a short. Right. And that was 10 minutes long. It was uh, about a girl who lived in a tree in Central Park mm. because it had to be very non controversial subjects if it was done through Barnard College again. Mm. That money was given to us by the composer Richard Rogers. Oh. Because he was on the board of trustees. Wow. And he had seen a play I directed at Barnard, and I didn't know who he was. And at the end of it, he asked if I wanted to do summer theater. And I said, no, um, you know, no one goes to the theater anymore. Imagine saying that to the <laughs> king of theater. Mm. Um, but I did. And uh, he said, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to make a movie. And he said, why? And I said, well, a movie you have forever. It's there and you can go and take it to people's homes and project it on their <laughs> walls. That was the extent of my, uh, my knowledge. Then uh, that turned out uh, quite successful. It was at the uh, New York Film Festival that year. And it was number third place to a film by George Lucas, THX 1138, which became the Star Wars uh, mm -hmm. protege. Mm -hmm. And then uh, a film by uh, Mike Scorsese called Italian American. I went to uh, Columbia Film School, but I actually made my first films before being there. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I feel the, the time on the street, uh, what I did, uh, you know, just... In those days, there you couldn't do it on a uh, on a phone. You mm. couldn't even do there. There wasn't such a thing as digital. So, yeah. if you were a filmmaker, you really had to get you know at least a, a sixteen millimeter camera, which was pretty big and bulky, and and so it was a real commitment. And save our pennies. I remember there'd be these rolls of four hundred feet of film that ran for ten minutes, and so anything that we had attempted to do had to be less than 10 minutes, you know, although we have to save up for more money. Now, today, you can just run your phone for hours and hours and do all these takes. Where did the internship with Joseph Papp come in? Well, right after when I graduated Barnard, um, it wasn't an internship. He was actually uh, my professor. I received the fellowship in directing theater mm -hmm. at Columbia School of the Arts. And uh, he was in charge of the program. And he would talk to me about, see, Linda, the most important thing is not what you're doing here, is how you get investors. And yeah. he, you know, and so that really planted something in my head about that. And he said, you know, you have to kind of dress like them and speak the language that they speak. And he had very fancy investors. So when he would go off to see investors, he had a, tattoo he used to wear his shirts rolled up and he had this big 
tattoo before tattoos were fashionable. And he said, well, you know, you've got to clean up and he would keep a nice white shirt in the <laughs> closet just off of our acting and put that on and, and head off and come back with money for the public theater. Wow. Oh God. So he had his like little fundraiser shirt at the ready. Yeah, his fundraiser shirt. I have my fundraiser outfits too. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you don't think it's a sexist question from a woman's point of view. It's just something that has always come my way or and Nancy's way as women. We were even debating, you know, should we ask Linda, like, what's it like to be a woman director? Or should, should we even classify, quantify things like that or, or anything? But you've had such an interesting life. And I just I feel like I want to get to know as much about it as possible because you're fascinating and you have this this great list of credits but i hope it doesn't sound like too women centric if that's no, we don't I, I don't think i don't think anything can be too women centric i believe that as a director i could do any subject and i wish that you know i wasn't like pigeonholed by anybody into doing just women's subjects mm-hmm. um, one of the movies i had the most fun doing um, after Chantilly Lace was a movie called Parallel Lives, which was half all guys and right. half all gals. It was a meaning of a fraternity and sorority. Um, and it had some of the, like the, the, the toughest, I put that in quotes because they weren't, they didn't find them that way, characters of actors like Ben Gazzara and Belushi. And Belushi, Eliza Minnelli is in that Eliza, also. Eliza, Dudley Moore and Jenna Rollins, I mean, great cast. But the guys particularly, they went like, are you sure you're going to handle these guys? The late Paul Servino, you know, who just oh, was yeah. it. So these were like a bunch of like very high testosterone group of guys. And I just loved working with them. It was the same way, really. There was no difference in working with them as the women who were also in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've always been kind of soft-spoken. Um, so... Uh, I know some women directors who are not, but they kind of, you know, say, I mean, Jenna Rollins, my my great pleasure in my life to get to work with her, one of the geniuses of, of acting, um, uh, you know, said that I speak with this little whisper. I'm like the softest spoken director on the set, but um, but everyone hears me, so it's okay. And I, I get what I want, you know, and she teases mm-hmm. me about, but, but uh, I, I rather that than what, when I was producing mm-hmm. in between starting out as a director, the way I did with the films that you, thank you, dug up um, and then <laughs> starting to produce where for a few years I was the executive producer but I hired other directors, mm-hmm. in that case, all men, because there weren't really any women to hire, actually. Mm. Um, uh, the, I saw how they were on, uh, you know, with actors, and um, two of the four were very bossy, and, 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 and the results were not good. Mm-hmm. And, and, and two of the others really directed pretty much like I do. Mm. So. And now, Mona Damon and Heron, with your permission, a bit of popular music from our newest member.
we've gone over your credits and both of us um, watched again playing for time in particular. Oh, my so, God. Oh, it, it's and you got to if I'm not wrong, it looked like you had a credit as executive producer and producer on that. Yes. In the business, one tends to uh, separate the executive producer as the one who has the idea and the creative and hires everybody. And the producer is more like the line producer. We might think of the person who's watching every penny and, uh, you know, hiring the below the line people and worrying about the grip trucks and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, coming from independent filmmaking and having this deal uh, which was an extraordinary deal in that I just had come from a small independent movie called Looking Up that was made for 96000 And suddenly wow. I'm playing in the networks at CBS and something which was like about $4 million. And I had to, my company had to be responsible for any overages. I, I swear to this day, it was a mistake, a blessing <laughs> mistake that they didn't put because normally what they would have done is put somebody very a powerful existing executive producer oh, above me okay. or something, but that didn't happen. You know, I slipped through the cracks. So then I had to use all my skills of independent filmmaking and worrying about every penny to save every penny uh, on that movie. And, and, wear the hat of, of producer line producer and it was a good thing i did because if you may know if you read about it we were under death threats and we had to hire bodyguards and we had so many things that were unanticipated that money had to go to that you know when you do a budget you just you never think about those kind of things right death who, would budget, who would have a line item for death threats security you know <laughs> yeah right you know right wow what were the death had. threats they thought the, the world thought that the movie was anti-semitic and uh, before it even uh, before it even came out yeah she keeps her head. only jews are shaved how do i look I mean, and it was written by Arthur Miller. I mean, people who were so dedicated to do well by this project um, and all came under tremendous fire, which we lived with for a year where we were all persona non grata because of being connected with this film. And then then it just became magical. uh, The first people to see it, I think, I think it was Newsweek and they put it on the cover of the magazine and then the National Council of Christians and Jews. And before oh. you knew, sometimes when something goes so far awry, mm-hmm. you know, when people dislike something so much and don't know about it, then the other reaction happens and it can go so far the other way. So I would say it was it turned out into a great triumph and the film we're very proud of, but very hard to make. Yeah. Do you use stock footage? We did because- uh, Them invading you know, Paris? Uh, yes, we, we did because, well, actually, if you look very carefully at the film, um, there's some movie 
there's a Frank Sinatra movie that was done on a train that we got the outtakes of the train footage because oh, we didn't have enough money for for trains and so production that's good producing on that, your part that's good right yeah. by saving pennies yeah right? and um uh god bless cbs uh, uh they could have buckled against these threats but they didn't, didn't. and uh they uh gave me ample time in the editing room um to to piece it together the way i had done my student films when I knew we didn't have enough footage uh, to do it that way. Whatever anybody else has, you have to have more. If that sort of thing catches on you, we're finished. I'm serious. Anything I have, you're welcome to. And I hope you'll do the same for me if I'm desperate. Fine, we can't very well share everything. I refuse to become an animal for a gram of margarine or a potato peel. But you don't need to share with the poles too, though. You share with those bitches, not me. We're not all like that. Oh, That's you just right. have a pet yeah. Jew. You like Fania, but you're an anti-Semite. Uh -huh. Oh, I am not. We had a lot of Jewish friends in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> what I liked about playing for time was that it wasn't about one person living or dying, but because this was for you know a group of orchestra members, if one person died in the orchestra, there was a chance the others might be dismantled. Mm -hmm. So when it came to like eating a morsel of food, there was this, you know, decision, do I eat it? Or does someone over here need it more to keep mm -hmm. us all alive? Yeah. Oh and God. that is, 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 is like how I wish we all understood that's our role in life in general. When we forget people who are suffering, you know, around the corner or around mm -hmm. halfway around the world. That's our obligation, I think, as, as human beings. Mandel's nothing but a killer. She's still beautiful, Giselle, I'm sorry. If you had an ounce of Jewish pride, you couldn't call such a monster beautiful. Don't try to make her ugly. She's beautiful. She's human. What disgusts me is that a woman who is so beautiful can be doing such things. We're of the same species. That's exactly what is so hopeless about the whole thing. No! There is still hope. Because when this war is over, Europe will be communist. And for that, I want to live. No, to see Palestine. To bring forth Jewish children in Palestine. Vanessa Redgrave's insistence that they had to see the Nazis as human beings, not just dis dismiss them as monsters. Oh, Marcel Rosenblatt, who's a dear, dear friend, oh, is also oh, wonderful. But wonderful. he kept insisting, you know, they're monsters. They're, I hate them. I just want to go to Israel. And Vanessa Redgrave, and just that idea, no, they're human beings. That one sat with me because I thought, yeah, it's easy to demonize the other side. But we better understand that human beings have the capability of doing something that's that evil and cruel and it, it kind of floored me that particular point and by the way that's one of the lines that slipped out before anyone saw the movie and people were outraged oh no that, out of context, that, out oh, of context no. you know so it seemed like that was what they thought made it pro-nazi which you know is is where people's thinking is but I, I guess also the saddest, what you're saying, uh, we have to remember, can happen any time. Uh, growing up, as, as, as I did with 
grandparents who escaped the Holocaust and uh, the, the fear of it, it could happen again, it could, it could happen here. They were so afraid of uh, anti-Semitism. And um, as a child growing up and young adult, adult, it's like, oh, what are you talking about? Those were ancient days. That's mm-hmm. not possible today. And look where we are. Look how every group that isn't uh, isn't exactly what you are or right. I am. People rebel against. Oh, it's uh, it's such well, a powerful thank movie. And the thank other you. surprising part, it was a TV movie. Yeah, was so sophisticated for TV. It, it was just an extraordinary. The freedom, um, Bill Paley was yes. alive then and uh you know took a real interest in mm-hmm. in this project and when this controversy you know was starting to happen he would ask them regularly is linda yellen crazy <laughs> and they go oh no linda's not crazy lucky that they were there he's because i don't know i'm hearing things are you sure then he was ultimately so very proud as as were the two young, they were pretty young executives then, Bernie Safronsky and Fred Rappaport. For outstanding drama special. Playing for time. Playing for time began as a memoir of a woman trying to shed some light on one of the darkest chapters in human history. Out of that pain and torment came a vision you know, years ago, there was a real line in the sand between doing film and doing TV for both. I don't know if it was the same with directors, but certainly for actors, actors who did film didn't do TV. And this is all before cable and streaming services and all of yeah. that. Now, with all of those opportunities, does the line still exist? And I guess the bigger question is, how has that changed how you've worked? Are there more opportunities? Are there less? Or... Well, I, I don't I don't like to boast generally, but I'm very proud of once I got into television. And as I said, those budgets of three million or four million in television were so much more money than I ever had that I just looked at every television project as a movie. Mm-hmm. That's all. It's a movie. It was a great opportunity for me as a movie. And I, um, I'm sure there are other people who did it, but even with my early films, as you know, I brought into it and insisted and and the executives helped me if I could get them, we could do it using movie stars. So like uh, I did the uh, Voyage of Mayflowers, Anthony Hopkins was Mm -hmm. one of the characters with Richard Krenner, who was a big TV star. And then, um, you know, playing for time, Vanessa Redgrave, you know, with a huge movie star just won an Academy Award mm-hmm. with Jane Alexander, who was a television star, mm-hmm. equally famous. But right. and and then I did uh, uh, the uh, Jacobo Timmerman story, Prisoner Without a Name, So Without a Number, and I brought over Ingmar Bergman's leading lady to play the lead. Right. Leave and Ullman. people Leave right. Ullman, who was so magnificent, beautiful, and Roy Scheider who had just won an Academy Award. And people say, how are you getting these people yeah. to do television? And the answer is a good role. Mm-hmm. That's all. Okay. You know, actors love a good role. Do you have a favorite yeah. if you had to choose? I mean, you, you're such a prolific and wonderful producer and writer and director. If you had to do one, would you pick one? Or I, I, I would I would pick directing, I, 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 I'm sure. 
uh, right, smiling, <laughs> laughing. Um, I, I kind of feel very fortunate that I, I do the other two because that keeps me being able to keep working, you know, and, and you don't have to wait around. You can lose so much time trying to hire a writer or hoping they're going to get it right, what you need, or, right. you know, optioning a book, things like that. Oh my so, gosh, yeah. And, and worst of all, trying to find the producer who believes in you enough to raise the money for you. So now yes. I, I wear that hat. But um, I, I always love directing and um, a very collaborative director. And uh, I'm sure it's been said many times on your show. I like the fact that a project is starts, you know, with I've always thought the script is a blueprint, you know, so that's like step one. And then you're shooting it and that it could turn into a totally different movie in the filming and then a different movie in the editing. And then God knows when they go out and sell it, they can sell it as a totally different movie yeah, too. Right, right. You know, so. Shades. Tell me about your editing process. Do you spend a lot of time in the edit room or do you oh, my God. let the editor no. go? No, no. It's uh, not only do I spend a lot of time, everybody connected with me we drive editors crazy there's no question about it you know? it appreciates that as yes, all so right. an editor. Yeah. but keep telling us like what's that experience like well uh because um you know what i generally try to do is is and when i say everybody i'm my my longtime writing partner many years michael leeds who's a theater director and mm. has the most incredible ability to remember everything so he will be looking for you know some some scrap of line or wow. bit of footage and um and uh my my line producer the kids in the office i <laughs> want to hear out everybody yeah. oh man and, and and get good ideas from everybody i mean ultimately i'm the one who ultimately has to say no we're going to do this but i i just want to explore it all particularly mm -hmm. I was so in favor uh, about um, when we went to digital editing because you could retain everything and, you know, summon it up. And in the old days, you, you had to use film and splice it. And my splices were always lousy, but it does encourage you to spend endless amounts of time. Yeah. But uh, you just made me think of something. It's a little off topic. Some of the cutaways in playing for time. Melanie Mayron's cutaways, and there are a couple of Christine Baronsky in there, and a couple of the other women, where you could just feel the the hopelessness, or they're just they're observing something else that's going on in the scene, and they reflect a, a feeling. And I I knew that okay, that's an editing they chose that to bring up about a feeling. You know, film scholars will see, but I'll give you a hint about it if you want to amuse yourself. Mm -hmm. So, as I said, I was very young when I, I did it. It was in, I was in my 20s when it began. Wow. And um, I, I loved the script so much that uh, uh, Arthur had done. I, would, I spent time up in Connecticut uh, as he was writing it. I'd come up every week and would go over things because he was a, just such a fabulous writer and, and, but, but didn't really know the film form. But then it came to making it with all the controversy, and I I wound up firing three directors, three major directors, and I had never fired a person ever wow. in my life. Wow! And again, CBS stood behind me because they were hurting the film as mm -hmm. it was meant to be. 
I could go on and on about it, the experience. But um, then we had this work of three different directors in the cutting room mm -hmm. and all three of them had missed certain things. Mm -hmm. um, and, but the script became my Bible and I had two great editors in, um, one a supervising editor, Ralph Rosenblum, and I'm forgiving oh, yeah. the states. Um, and I made reels, this was my idea, of like a reel of all of Marcel Rosenblatt's reaction shots, mm -hmm. all of Vanessa's reaction. I made just reels of everybody's reaction shots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when the m moment in the film needed to breathe, but it wasn't shot that way, so that the performance mm -hmm. did breathe, I stuck it, found a shot that looked like it would go. If you look at the film carefully and stop it frame by frame, you'll see the same shots are reversed sometimes. You use it one way and then flipped. You'll see people's hair changing lengths. Oh, yes, you'll yes. See, hmm. you know? Yeah, and I that's think it was all... because time had passed and they'd been there. Yeah, that's yes, what I... Yeah. Well, when it's in order, but I mean going back and forth, okay. changing if you were, because... What happened was the whole country stopped and watched this movie on television. It was mm. so amazing. And no one caught those editing mistakes. And believe me, there are, you know, just dozens and dozens in it. But because the performances were honest, the emotional mm. choices yes. were right. It was a secret editing room because of the death threats. Yeah. Uh, it was under a different name. Mm -hmm. And Arthur Miller would come every once in a week and bought me a, a turkey sandwich with coleslaw and Russian <laughs> dressing and would see, right, would see how we did, you know, and he'd say, this is very good. And so, and this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And, and that's how we edited it. But, but it just was how to really cut your teeth on editing and the importance of it. Mm -hmm. And I was so fortunate that never having had much money for those student projects, I already had a, a feel for that. Mm -hmm. What are you thinking about now? What's on your mind? What interests you? If you had to do a TED Talk, what mm -hmm. would it be? Well, it would be about, you know, following your passion. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I sort of live and breathe film I, I try not to you know yeah. uh, but but I'm I'm thinking in the back of my mind how you know and being with you and your appreciativeness of a work that I've done uh, several of my works makes me come on Linda you you, you can do another one you can do another oh. one against the obstacles and um, you know today I'm, I'm so excited like I spoke to uh, a current cinematographer I love who's out of Romania Mm. And uh, I still have the same value as how can we get the best stuff and do it inexpensively. And he had to speak to me. He was so excited. His name is Gabriel Kosus. He comes from Hungary, where film school is a really serious endeavor there. Mm. And you learn all about lighting and, and, and just the art of filmmaking. And he has that. And he said, there's a new camera. There's a new camera, Linda. It's so wonderful. And it mm. has its own great focus pulling. So you'll save money. You, you don't need to have a focus puller, you know, on the, on the huh. set. What? And if you have two cameras, you'll save two focus pullers. And the first thing in my mind is, oh, my God, that's so great. Where How can we save that money and use it somewhere else? And then I got very concerned. 
well, I hope that that focus puller's job, that that person can be used in a different job because so do we have to re-educate, you know, the focus yeah. pullers in some way. At the gala, you were talking about uh, DGA and oh, yeah. the number of female directors has dropped. Isn't that crazy? I know. Can you, just... can you run those stats by us again? You When you joined? Yeah. When I joined, I'm trying to think it was like 18 or 19 percent. Okay. And it's about what, 15, 16 now. And I don't know what that's a factor of. I mean, there are many more opportunities for everybody to direct than Mm -hmm. there were there. But I guess if you examine it, it's, it might be less than that. It might be, I don't have the figures in my head at the moment. Um, But if you examine that, I guess the type of material being made, like the action and thriller and uh, horror, even no one Mm -hmm. thinks women can do that. There's, you know, and so even though there's more opportunity to work, the proportion of women mm-hmm. that are in that are smaller. So that's why the numbers are lower. Oh, I hope um, so. Yeah. Even, yeah. yeah, with Catherine Bigelow. And, uh... Well, she's an exceptional. She's yeah. fabulous. And, and mm-hmm. she's an exception. And she almost didn't have that opportunity. I, mm-hmm. I, I, she had done uh, a, surf, a movie about surfing, I think, and uh, I wanted her to do a movie. I had the rights to burn this. Mm-hmm. And oh, I just like the Linda so... Wilson play? Yes. Okay. Yes. And um, it just was a very moving acting story and very tense. And I, I think she could have done a beautiful job. And uh, it, the people at the studio at the time said, mm-hmm. oh, no, she hasn't done anything that's right for that. They couldn't make the uh, transition that. Uh, from her work to see that they could do. That's happened a few times mm-hmm. with me. I, I have a great cinematographer I worked with and, and then they wanted to know, well, exactly what has he done a period piece? You know, no, but he's won all these awards and this. Is it possible that the number of independent films and maybe they're not, you, the women that are directing them aren't in the DGA? They're not in DGA, is that part of it? Because there seem to be a lot of women out there. Yeah, no, I, that could be, that could be it. Yeah, that could be it. Uh, and and you know, some people make the decision to not join any unions in the independent world because you know it, it sets a cost level that you have to make oh. the film by, right? Because mm-hmm. you have to pay certain mm-hmm. union rates, uh, right? And that's true if you're a screenwriter, or a director, or an actor. Mm-hmm. So if you join. DGA, you can't do an independent where you would be paid lower scale. You're not allowed to do that? No, you're not allowed to. But I will say, and I contributed as in my position on the executive council, the DGA now offers wonderful opportunities to do movies at all sorts of budget levels Mm -hmm. where there's still, I mean, there's still, you have to pay DGA dues, you have to pay certain things, but the, what you have to pay the talent is much much less and right. and they did it because they recognize the people creative people want to be working at mm-hmm. all levels it's funny how even now in 2022 um women are still measured by that are you in a relationship do you have kids there's there's not the same respect given to women like us we feel that men get that maybe haven't coupled or haven't had kids did you have a 
any kind of issues with that or struggles with that? Or is it anybody's business even? Uh, I don't feel it's anybody's business, uh, but people always make what they don't know their business, you know, particularly in Hollywood. <laughs> they really yes, they do. You know, want that and love that. Um, I, I think the struggles have been more me internalizing them. What would my life have been like if I had gone down this path uh, with this mm -hmm. fellow or not? Or And, um, you know, what would it be like to have grown kids now? Or what would I have missed out on? I think, you know, it, it, being of a certain age, one gets a little bit reflective mm -hmm. uh, about that. And what an opportunity young women have today to be able to freeze their eggs and the partners can freeze sperm and and have uh, as long a window of opportunity to do it all as men had right. traditionally in the past. You know, Hollywood has been my life since I made that first movie at 16, 17, the, the short. Um, and so I've been always in it in some way. I can't speak to other fields. Uh, I don't know what it's like. I think there's people in Hollywood, in one way, the creative people have bigger hearts than anybody you would ever want to meet, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think there's so much about, um, even when you're very successful, there are people in more of the business end of it or the non-creative end of it can somehow make you, you feel small or alone. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? Yep. And I found this as a uh, very rewarding as a director where I direct some of the biggest name stars people could imagine and learn that they were treated poorly by other, mm. uh, you know, people, including in some cases other directors um, and how easy it is just to have a discourse, just human to human and, and, and get rid of that kind of those layers. So, so I, uh, uh, look, we have funny lives when you go off and make a movie and you get so close and you're like this little knit family for however long, however many weeks between pre-production and production. And you always vow you're going to stay together and see each other. Maybe you do for publicity or something like that. And then years go by, you know, mm -hmm. yep. but then if you're lucky, you have a few close friends that came out of that, that, mm -hmm. you know, it, we're, we're, it's a vagabond existence if I oh, think yeah. about, uh, you know, and, and you don't, we don't see it. I mean, somebody said to me, you know, you, you've had a hard life being in this is hard. I'm going like, what do you mean hard life? I do <laughs> fun things. I don't see it that way. Well, that's our show. Thanks to our wonderful guest, Linda Yellen, director, producer, writer, award winner, and all-around cool lady. We can't wait till our next zany limo ride with Linda. But in the meantime, her latest film, Chantilly Bridge, is available for streaming on Apple TV. So we recommend that you check out Chantilly Lace first to get a taste of those fantastic characters. And then pour yourself another glass of Pinot Noir and watch the sequel. Oh, and do yourself a favor. Google Linda Yellen and watch everything of hers you can find. She is a master filmmaker. Playing for time, in particular, will blow your mind. The Giles Files was created by Nancy Giles and Nancy Wyatt, produced, directed, and edited by Nancy Wyatt, and recorded at our studios in Weehawken, New Jersey. 
Be sure to check out The Giles Files on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And write us a review, okay? Tell us what you think. We want to hear from you. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Giles Files, okay? Oops. <laughs>